Welcome to the official podcast for the National Association for Business Economics, your one-stop shop for catching up on the latest in business economics on the go. Be sure to hit the follow button and the bell icon to stay up to date on our latest releases. Today's podcast is the webinar replay of the July Fireside Chat with Governor Christopher Waller of the Federal Reserve Board of Governors. Governor Waller sits down with now former president, Dave Altig, executive vice president and director of research at the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta to discuss all things monetary policy and inflation. Let's get to Chris and Dave. Thanks, Caitlin, and welcome everyone to this uh, final installment of NABE's special series on inflation and monetary policy. It's our great pleasure today to have uh, to be joined by Governor Chris Waller. Um, Chris, I think you can come on screen. Um, Chris doesn't really need a whole lot of, uh, of uh, introduction, uh, as most people are familiar with his background, so I'll keep this brief. Uh, at, uh, Chris, Chris actually joined the Federal Reserve System, I think in June of 2009. So he ushered in the, uh, the beginning of the recovery or end of the recession from the global financial crisis. So I consider that a good sign. And of course he had a, a, a very distinguished academic career before coming to the Fed at Indiana University, University of Kentucky, uh, and Notre Dame, the latter two where he held uh, chairs. Uh, and then of course today, as of December, 2020, a governor of the, uh, of the board uh, of the um, Federal Reserve. Uh, most impressive, I think, however, that many people maybe don't know, is that uh, Governor Waller is a Kentucky Colonel and uh, an Arkansas commander. Is that traveler? Traveler, an Arkansas traveler. So, uh, on his list of uh, accomplishments, those are those are two great ones. Um, so let's get right into it. And I will remind everyone that the Q and A will be open throughout, and I'll do my best to um, monitor. Uh, the incoming questions and we will get to them, but let's start off with just a few uh, uh, points uh, to begin with. So the minutes are out from the last meeting, um, uh, which now feels like it was about an eternity ago. Uh, so I sort of like to kind of get your thoughts on how, if, if, you're, if you're thinking about the economy and in particular the path of policy has changed. Uh, since uh, since the meeting reflected in those minutes. Yeah, I mean, Dave, my position has is driven mainly by inflation, which is just too high and doesn't seem to be coming down. So my view is we I need we need to move to um, a much more restrictive setting in terms of interest rates and policy, and we need to do that as quickly as possible. So. As I've been advocating for several months, I, I really support the idea of front-loading our rate hikes, by which what I mean is large increases early to get us up to the near neutral of the target range, and then smaller increases after that. So kind of steep up fast and then start to flatten out the rate increases. I just think there's a lot of value to getting those rate hikes in, get them validated, the markets have been expecting them and get it done. And then as the second half of the year comes in, we're in a better position to kind of move things according to how the data comes in. So you are, I mean, you are thinking of um, a path that uh, where the first order of businesses get to some 
notion of neutral? Do you have some kind of basic idea of where that, uh, uh, where that is? Yeah, I mean, the committee, the SCP has it somewhere in the ballpark of two, 225 to 250 basis points. Uh, I support a 75 basis point move at the upcoming meeting. Uh, that would get us in the 225 to 250 range in July. And then any moves after that would start putting us into what we think of as more restricted territory. So I'm definitely in support of doing another 75 basis point hike in July, probably 50 in September. And then after that, we can debate whether to go back down to 25s or if inflation just doesn't seem to be coming down, we have to do more. I mean, inflation is just... Uh, this is just a bad outcome that we need to kind of get under control. So when you get to that period of time when um, you're, um, you've sort of moved into slightly restrictive range and you begin to think of things in kind of a state contingent sort of uh, way, are you keying mainly off inflation or inflation expectations or uh, where's the real economy sort of considerations gonna come into that? Yeah, I mean, this is the, the concern that I have with inflation that, uh, you know, if we don't get inflation down and under control, we all worry about unanchoring of expectations. And that's something we just can't have done. So President Mester, for example, last week in Centra made the point that we're better off erring from a risk management point of view on the side that they might be uh, becoming unanchored and make sure we get them back down then to assume they're anchored and they get away from us. So I think it's really critical that we try to get inflation down. If we take a lot of aggressive actions now, we'll be able to have a, a quicker impact on inflation if we keep delaying the hikes to some extent. Hopefully at some point, some of these supply side effects will help us out, but I'm not worried about that anymore. If they help, they help. If not, we just gotta keep going on policy. Now on the real side, like I've said, I've advocated for this front loading approach for one important reason is that the labor market's been strong. The economy has been reasonably strong, although we're getting these kind of negative readings recently on GDP. Um, so do the big rate hikes when the economy's strong and the labor market can take it. If you're promising a bunch of rate hikes down the road when everything seems to really be weakening, it's not obvious you'll ever carry them out. So I know there's a lot of concern about uh, over tightening, possibly causing a recession, but I just want to remind people that, you know, inflation is a tax on economic activity. And the higher that tax, the more it suppresses economic activity. So if we don't get inflation under control, inflation on its own could put us in a really bad economic outcome down the road, whether we do anything or respond to it or not. So I think the committee really understands this. And so this kind of worries that there's going to be a stop and go policy by the committee, like happened in the 70s, I, I, that's just not going to happen, in my view. Everybody understands we've got to get inflation under control. So the uh, er, early after the, the last meeting, um, it appeared that kind of the rate hikes that uh, were in the SEPs were sort of built into market pricing. Um, that appears to maybe have uh, backed off a bit. Uh, so we now have seen a significant flattening of the yield curve uh, and a slight inversion uh, even. Um, presumably this is concern. Um, maybe the expectation 
that um, some significant softening is in play. Do you think we can avoid that? Yeah, I mean, there's this kind of funny uh, way you can look at an inverted yield curve, which is rates are high in the front end because inflation's high, but markets believe we're going to push down inflation and lower rates later. That will cause an inversion in the yield curve, but that's a good inversion. That's not a negative <laughs> inversion. People are interpreting more as it's going to be a recession and a bad outcome. Uh, it's not clear that that's, you know, despite some of the uh, news on GDP, we're still seeing we got a good uh, PMI services, which is what you would expect in this rotation from manufacturing back to services. So PMI manufacturing is coming down, still positive. PMI services comes in better than expected. So on that side of the economy, we're seeing good things. Labor market, still vacancies, still nearly two to one in the labor market. And, you know, we should forecast her for a pretty decent jobs report tomorrow, somewhere in the 275,000, which is phenomenal when you think about it in a more historical perspective. So I'm, I personally think some of the fears of inflation or um, a recession are kind of overblown. A lot of forecasting models predicting probabilities of recession, they're not even over 50% or they're less depending on what the model is. So I'm not taking a lot of, and the way the volatility in the yield curve for the last month, as you pointed out, that doesn't give me a lot of um, uh, support to think just because it's inverted in the last day by two or three tenths that that's meaning anything right now. So I, I opened up asking you the question about the policy rates, but of course there's another element uh, to policy uh, in play, uh, that's the balance sheet. Uh, and uh, the unwinding of uh, some of the uh, growth in the balance sheet and reserves. Is, is that factoring into your kind of thinking about the positioning of monetary policy, either now or what it will look like down the road? Yeah, I think when it came to the balance sheet, once we made the announcement for the path of reduction, all that was priced in from the beginning. So the actual runoff of it isn't really going to change market pricing or change interest rates very much. That should already have been uh, already occurred. Uh, we're not going to use our balance sheet as a primary tool for tightening. Anything you can do with the balance sheet, you can just do with the Fed funds rate, the policy rate. If you need to tighten, just raise the Fed funds rate more. You don't have to screw around with the balance sheet any more than you're doing. Uh, we'll watch and see how the runoff uh, occurs and how it's affecting liquidity in the financial markets. Uh, the last time we did it, we did it very slow and came down and then we got caught by surprise when markets kind of felt like they needed more reserves than they were telling us at the time. Uh, now we think we can lower it down to maybe the point where reserves are nine, maybe 10% of GDP without causing too much trouble. But as we get near that, we'll start slowing down and pay more attention to see how things work. But as far as any impact on rates, I think once we announced the balance sheet plan, that was all priced in. So those effects are already there and showing up. So you think uh, definitely your opinion that uh, rate policy proper is preferable to uh, a combination of kind of active uh, balance sheet policy and rate policy or balance sheet policy only? Yeah, I mean, we've always done balance sheet policy once we were at the zero lower bound. That's when we did it. 
And then the idea is once you start raising rates, there's no reason to be using the balance sheet for anything in particular, just you raise rates. Anything you can accomplish in terms of a 25 basis point hike from the balance sheet, you can just add an extra 25 basis points to the policy rate at a meeting. So you can always accomplish it much faster with the just policy rate as opposed to trying to rely on the balance sheet. So a couple of questions have come in already that um, uh, and I'm going to kind of combine them. Um, uh, and one of them actually echoes a comment that uh, someone uh, or a question someone asked me from another central bank that will remain uh, unnamed, but it was a small open economy that takes us as uh, as data. Uh, and that question was, OK, what took you so long uh, to start raising rates? Uh, and the adjunct to that question is, uh, are we behind the curve at this point? Um, and what will it take to get in front of the curve if you think that we are? Yeah, I would say looking back, I gave a couple of talks recently on looking back to 2021. I'd say that the thing that we didn't do well in 2021 is we didn't pursue the right risk management strategy in 2021. We kind of bet the farm that inflation was transitory and would come down on its own. But we should have been asking, what if it doesn't come down? How should we prepare for that contingency? And in that world, risk management would have suggested moving sooner than we did in order to create policy space if inflation didn't come down. Uh, I was arguing for this point last summer that we needed to get tapering going to create policy space in 2022 if we needed to raise rates. I didn't think we needed to at the time, but we needed the policy space from a risk management point of view. So kind of in my view, what was the problem is we just didn't start tapering soon enough. We could have started tapering much sooner. We could have gone slow. And, but at least once you've started tapering, the process is underway. And then you could have accelerated it to get to the point where you could have possibly, you know, raised rates in December if you had to. But I think that was really it. I think we bet too much on rates or inflation would just come down on its own. And then we had to kind of do an abrupt and fast pivot to try to catch up. So I want to ask you uh, that follow up on that uh, comment sort of about our, our, can we look forward to some good luck on the inflation uh, part? But before I do that, just to kind of summarize, I, I, I gather that you um, think that the odds of a, a soft landing, however that might be defined, are pretty good. Is that, would that be fair? Yeah, I still think we have a good shot at this. I know that's uh, not, the, <laughs> not the chatter in the markets or in the talking heads on the commentary, but you have to look at the labor market and say, this is a pretty spectacular labor market by historical standards. You know, two to one jobs per person looking, an unemployment rate of 3.6, something in the neighborhood of two and a half million jobs created in the first five months of this year. That's a pretty robust labor market. It would, something would really dramatically have to change to drive that to the point where unemployment goes up to six, seven, eight percent. And I don't think it's going to be raising the policy rate to three, three and a quarter percent. It's going to be that dramatic to do that. So I think if we get some good luck, although I'm not counting on it, I'm done counting on good luck. <laughs> you know, if we get it, great. That just means we can pull off in terms of aggressive rate hikes sooner. But at this point, my job is to get inflation down and that's all I'm focusing on right now. So how, 
how your comments about the labor market, um, it's a bit confounding because it does look like we're going to get a second uh, quarter of negative growth. How, how are you thinking about that? Yeah, I mean, this is a puzzle to me. I know we, there's one thing where we're seeing a divergence between GDP and GDI, gross domestic income continues to be going up, GDP is trending the other way. And those two things from accounting are supposed to exactly be the same. So at some point there'll have to be some data revisions. And usually when that happens, when this gap opens up between GDI and GDP, it kind of goes somewhere in the middle. So it kind of hints to me that GDP numbers might get revised up later. GDI might get revised down somewhat. But it's a really odd to think about an economy where you add two and a half million workers and output goes down. I just, I don't, I don't know what kind of world <laughs> does that. So there's something in the measurements, something in the exports categories, other things that are really undermining what the domestic side of the economy is doing. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure if anybody's got any answers, let me know. I guess if, I'm guessing if you were sitting on the MBER business cycle dating committee, you would not be inclined at this point yeah. to say uh, this is a recession. Yeah, yeah, that would be tough to say we have a recession with 3.6 percent unemployment. Yeah, I don't <laughs> think that's probably happened before. But. I don't think so. So let me let me uh, ask about sort of your thinking about inflation dynamics and the mechanism by which. Uh, we might find our way to something much closer to your uh, and the committee's two uh, percent uh, objective. Um, I mean, the traditional way of thinking about this, of course, would be through some sorts of Phillips curve reasoning, which would suggest that uh, maybe um, some um, significant softening, if not a recession, would be required. Um, if that's not the mechanism that you have in mind, what, what, what is the mechanism? What model do you have in your head as you think about kind of the inflation dynamics going forward? Yeah, I mean, the, the whole Phillips curve thing has not been very reliable for the last 40 years in terms of predicting inflation. But in the standard kind of New Keynesian model, the reason you get this trade-off is because of sticky prices. Prices don't adjust. Well, that sticky price adjustment parameter, which we take as exogenous when we calibrate these models, that thing's not endogenous. People change. And right now, I'd say that sticky price parameter is about zero, looking at what firms are doing. And the minute that happens, the Phillips curve becomes very steep. If you have a very steep Phillips curve, it tells you you can bring inflation down a lot without causing a lot of problems in terms of output or employment. So I think that's where the whole Phillips curve thing just becomes a problem because these parameters are endogenous. They're not exogenous. And so you think you've got a flat Phillips curve when reality right now is probably closer to vertical than it is horizontal. That helps us on the South landing story by still, you know, you can still appeal to your Phillips curve. It's just the parameters change that you're used to having sticky. It's not sticky anymore. So are you uh, of the mind yet that we are um, experiencing enough of an uptick in inflation expectations that that's actually feeding through to the inflation numbers or do you think we're not there yet? I don't think it's there yet, but man, I don't wanna to get to that point. That's, <laughs> that's the whole thing we know about expectations. Once they become unanchored, you've lost. 
So we never really want to get to that point. I never want to get to the point where these things keep creeping up. We got to chop this off now. Uh, it's just a bad outcome once they ever become unanchored and it starts being built in. So I'm not hearing quite as much from firms about kind of building in permanently higher wage, nominal wage increases. We're seeing some restraint on pricing by firms as they're starting to see a fall off in demand. We're starting to see housing prices start to come down, rents are starting to drift down. So all of the actions we've taken to kind of pull back on demand, we're starting to see some of those effects coming through. And when that happens, that should help get inflation expectations to stay kind of where they are, drop back down to target. So your comment about the steepening of the Phillips curve is an interesting one. Um, and do, do, you, do you think we're going to need some help um, in the way of, you know, outright disinflation on uh, commodity prices and oil and, um, and, and what if that doesn't happen? Yeah, I mean, the, the thing is what we're really trying to do is just get them to stop going up, <laughs> right? If they leveled off and flattened off, then, then the inflationary effects kind of go away. We don't need them to actually fall back down. If they come back down some and help us push pre, uh, prices down faster, that works for me, I'll take that. Uh, but I keep trying to tell people like with housing, we're not trying to force housing prices down. We're just trying to keep them from going up faster than 2%, basically. Uh, and that, that's what we're trying to do. We're not trying to cause a housing market crash. We're not trying to cause a commodity market crash. We're just trying to get these prices to stop going up. And if they flatten out and go to the rate of change goes to zero, that's good enough for me. So you brought up housing. So uh, let's, let's jump there for just a second. It's, um, uh, I presume that in your thinking about this, it is still sort of the interest rate uh, and the connection of uh, the federal funds rate um, to the broader array of, of uh, and market interest rates that does the work of monetary policy, which means of course, it's gonna hit these interest sensitive sectors disproportionately. Um, or at least I, I'll say, of course, you could push back on that if you want. But, um, but we are, I think, already beginning to see the effects of that in housing markets. So um, at some point, you start to put on your hat as th someone thinking about fin uh, financial stability and potential fragility. Have you, do you have concerns along those lines as this process continues? Yeah, I've thought a lot about this. And, you know, what we know is that pretty much since 2020, uh, a large part of the explosion housing is was a demand driven phenomenon. You had people wanting to move into bigger spaces, get out of an apartment, they were going to work from home. Millennials were coming off the sidelines for the first time in a decade to buy homes. Uh, so there are a lot of demand reasons for housing prices to be going up. Our purchases of MBS and low interest rate policies also help feed into that demand. So the demand part of it, I think, is still fundamentally solid. Uh, what we're trying to do is take some of the excess pressure off prices. I mean, housing prices went up 45% in two years. I mean, that's just insane. So you could have prices fall back even 10 or 20% and you're still up in two years, <laughs> you know, 20%, 25%. So I'm, I'm not as worried about anything finance. There's a lot of equity that's been built up in housing. And so that would be the first 
absorber of any decline in house prices. The beautiful thing of the last 10 years is housing's been, uh, there's a lot of equity, 20% down by borrowers, high income borrowers, banks are not overexposed to these things. So from a financial point of view, the housing market doesn't look like it's gonna be a threat anytime soon. And the demand is still there. We're just trying to push some of that demand down. It'll still probably be a healthy labor market. And if anything, if we can get some house prices to moderate or come down, that'll help first-time home buyers who, despite low interest rates, you know, if you can't buy a house that's within your income range, it doesn't matter how low the interest rates are. So the price has got to come down at some point or stop going up so that you can grow your way into it. So I, I, I assume with respect to this issue, you're comforted by a fair amount of evidence that balance sheets across the entire economy are in pretty good shape yeah. this time around. Uh, it, it raises kind of an interesting question, which is, uh, of course, in the global financial crisis and uh, you know, our last round with this stuff, that definitely was not the case. Right. Um, so does that actually alter the fact the, the this different kind of circumstance alter your thoughts about um, risk management with monetary policy, with uh, uh, the scope for more um, aggressive action than we might've been able to take in the past? Is the reaction function still sort of the same? Yeah, I mean, coming off of a financial crisis where there was a massive loss of wealth, uh, a lot of that loss was absorbed by the banking system. And then just the recovery from that hole, that was a, that was a completely different recession than what we're seeing this time, which was this kind of pandemic and then reopening, uh, all the adjustments on the supply side, huge demand. You had a ton of forced savings, plus a lot of stimulus that came in from both fiscal and monetary policy early on, not after the fact, but you know, early on. So I think the as, as I kind of talked about often last year, the recovery from the pandemic recession was much faster and much sharper than we were used to thinking about. And that clearly affected our thinking in the sense that if we thought it was gonna be more like the last recession, it was gonna be this kind of slow grinding recovery and that we had to have a lot of stimulus in place for a long time, rates would have to be low. I mean, when I first came on the committee, the projection by the entire committee was rates wouldn't rise until 2024. And look where we are, you know, in 2022. So, you know, the leaning back on the past recovery as kind of the guidance for where we were going to go, that turned out to be a, a kind of a big mistake. Not that anybody was using it per se, but kind of thinking the recovery was going to be the same, uh, kind of put us in this kind of bad position of being behind the curve in terms of getting policy at rates up and getting policy accommodation withdrawn. Um, let me um, let me ask the then question about sort of what you think that the trajectory of the return to normal, uh, if you will, um, might look like on on the inflation side. Um, do you um, have uh, a view uh, about uh, the speed with which uh, we might get into your? range of acceptable 
inflation performance. And, and what would that look like? I mean, what would you call convincing evidence that the rate of inflation is uh, where you where we need it to be? Yeah, so, I mean, we've got core PC growing at three-tenths or more the last four months in a row. That's 4% a year on core. That's double our target. So that's not acceptable to even say, oh, let's just kind of keep it where it's at. So I would need to see inflation core PC in particular coming down much closer to two and a half to 3% by the end of the year. So we feel comfortable that we could really think about backing off on interest rate hikes uh, in the, towards the end of the year, beginning of next year. Right now, it doesn't look like that's gonna happen. Um, but that would be what I would have to see. I'd have to see, you know, this thing ticking down to two tenths a month, core PC two tenths a month to give me any indication inflation going forward is going to be much lower. So, so there's a question here, which I think you just answered, which is, um, are there any circumstances in which you would look at sort of 3% inflation, for example, and say, yeah, that's okay. Not a chance. <laughs> Um, I'll just say that it's it's two it's two it's two we're driving it back to two there's none of this eh, close enough for government work when it comes to this question for me we said two we're going to get it to two I somehow thought you were going to say that um, <laughs> so you mentioned you, you kind of mentioned there you were going to be looking at core do you have a set of favorite core measures or yeah, I mean, I was thinking about this uh, a little bit earlier today that, you know, I like, I look a lot at CPI and I know PCE headline is our number, uh, but I like both of them. You know, the CPI is more heavily weighted towards shelter. And one reason I kind of like to look at that is that's, that's more consistent with what low and moderate income groups face. They face a much bigger share of their disposable income going to shelter, food and energy than upper income groups do. So I don't mind CPI as being kind of a good example of what lower and moderate income groups have to face in terms of inflation. So I don't dismiss it. I look at it very seriously. Um, core inflation, it's not that we dismiss food and energy. It's just we're looking at core as a forecast of future inflation. I think we, we lose this in our communication all the time when we say, yeah, but core only went up X. Like we don't care that food and energy went up and are emptying people's bank accounts to fill up their trucks or fill up their grocery carts. We look at core because we think it's a better predictor, not that we, that's all we care about. Uh, so I look at core mainly because I'm thinking of it as forecasting out future inflation where it's going. But I look at headline CPI and I look at headline PC all the time in terms of thinking about what has to be done. So, would, would you, I mean, I'm ask, asking you a hypothetical here, which is always difficult, but um, would you c conceive of a possibility that um, if for reasons related to kind of the Ukrainian conflict and Russia's um, uh, energy uh, response to that, and then maybe the knock-on effects to food prices through the cost of fertilizer uh, and so on, can you contemplate a, a, a situation in which these sort of core measures would begin to look, you know, reasonable to you, but we would still have quite elevated 
uh, inflation on a headline number? How, how would you parse that? Yeah, I mean, that's a tough, that's a tough question. I mean, I, I always kind of think about it when it, people always point to these supply side effects. You know, our mandate says price stability. It doesn't say price stability unless Putin invades Ukraine. That's not what our mandate says. So at the end of the day, whatever the cause is, I don't care. Our job is to generate price stability. And we picked headline as our target. So at the end of the day, we need to get headline inflation down as best we can. Like I said, I like to look at core just because I think it gives me some idea of where we might be headed that could be wrong. But again, headline is our target. That's what we're looking at. And like I said, Congress, when they gave us our mandate, they didn't give us exceptions anywhere in there that I can tell that we don't have to worry about it in certain states of the world, but only if it's a demand stimulus type shock. So, yeah, so a question came in about uh, the apportionment in your mind of, between supply and demand side effects on the inflation. I, uh, would your answer be, uh, doesn't matter? I don't care. <laughs> no, I was just at Sintra for the ECB version of Jackson Hole, and there was a nice paper presented by some academics uh, who tried to do a kind of a multi-sector input-output linkages across sectors, trying to sort out how much is demand and how much is supply. And for the U.S., they came up with about two-thirds of the inflation we're experiencing is demand-side driven, and one-third is supply. For Europe, it was about 50-50. Now, that tells you that demand are really big. If you take those results of that academic study seriously, it's telling that most of what we're dealing with is demand-side problems. It's not supply-side, even though everybody talks about the supply-side. And one of the points I've tried to be making to people recently is if everything was supply-side, the real side of our economy would be much worse. All of our standard economic analysis says if there's some big reduction in supply, output's got to fall, employment's got to fall, everything's got to fall, and we're, we're not seeing that. So what you're seeing is full, near full employment, healthy labor market, lots of inflation. That always signals more demand stimulus than supply. So, um, since um, we have this notion that the demand side elements of, of the price pressures are um, large, if not dominant, uh, that does kind of raise the question about some old-fashioned monetary thinking, and that is um, uh, the role of reserves and the balance sheet and the money supply. Um, we don't hear too much about that uh, anymore. So do you think that the kind of massive response of the Federal Reserve in terms of the growth of, uh, of bank reserves ha had a role in promoting um, these demand side elements and um, uh, you know, how does that feed into your thinking about the rapidity with which uh, normalization, that's not a very good word, but um, return of the balance sheet to a smaller uh, size, um, how, how important uh, does that factor in? Yeah, so the classic kind of monetary example is you increase the money supply, you double the money supply, prices should double. Standard kind of level effect money neutrality result. But in that example, when we double the money supply, we're assuming it's permanently out there. It's a permanent helicopter drop that's never taken back. 
that's not what we've done. We've done QE with the full promise to everybody that we are going to take it back out at some point. That is a very different monetary policy exercise than the classic helicopter drop. Uh, and I've done some work with my co-author, Alexander Berenson, where we showed that you can do those kind of injections and there's no inflationary effects as long as you credibly remove those reserves when you don't need it. So that's how I interpret the last roughly 10 years. The Fed put in all these reserves in the system when they were needed. And then when they weren't needed, we started taking them back out. So we have complete credibility that this, this is not a permanent helicopter drop as you would teach in Econ 101. And so it's a very different way of thinking about how you do monetary policy. But you did, you did suggest that maybe getting on with the um, winding down of uh, those temporary uh, policy choices uh, took a little bit too long. And so again, that sort of raises this question, would it have been helpful to, um, because I gather what you're saying is, is that, you know, the, we have not uh, repealed the uh, law of inflation everywhere and always a monetary <laughs> phenomenon. We just have to think carefully about the nature of the monetary the policy. Monetary invention, yeah. You need to think clearly what the monetary intervention is. Um, and in dynamic models, things are very different than a static MV equals PY world. Um, but that, does that drive in part why you th thought think it would have been better to kind of start a little bit earlier on enhancing? Yeah, yeah sorry. Uh, it was what, I, what, what, what I was always, what I've been concerned about is that because we agreed that we weren't going to lift off or raise rates until we were finished tapering, well, to finish tapering, you, you got to get started. And there's a limit to how fast you can taper, especially when you're buying 120 billion a month. So the longer you delay the taper, the more you push back when you should be raising rates. And that's what I was more concerned about. If we had started earlier, we could have gotten finished earlier. And then in the fourth quarter of last year, we could have started raising rates if we'd have QE finished by you know, September, October of last year, or near finished, we could have got rate hikes up a lot quicker, a lot sooner before inflation really took off. Um, so that, that, that's a little bit of a different direction as opposed to the direct effect of the, of the balance sheet policy oh, as opposed to. So the decisions to sequence those tools in a particular way, of course, is not, you know, wasn't given by, um, by Moses, it was, it was a decision. Um, but do you think that that's kind of the right way we should be thinking about policy? Maybe this is a lesson for the future, not for the past, uh, but um, um, how do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, the sequencing is fine. You need to, if you're doing asset purchases and you're at the zero lower bound, then finish the asset purchases before you lift off. Otherwise you got this weird contradiction of you're raising rates, but still buying stuff. And that's what we want to avoid is any situation like that. The question is how fast can you shrink your the asset purchases? You could go cold turkey and just say, we're not gonna buy anymore, done. Let the market take over. Uh, that seems to not be good for market functioning from everything I've been told. So we kind of tell the markets, here it goes. We're gonna slow these things down and get them done. Uh, and then the market kind of can adjust to absorb the purchases from us. So that's 
that's all I meant by the, you know, you, you can't just cold turkey stop and then raise rates. Theoretically, we can, of course. I do it in my models all the time. <laughs> but the reality is the markets need a little more warning about, hey, you got to start picking up another $120 billion a month on your own. So let's spend a minute looking to the other side of, uh, of this particular cycle and um, assume we get back to a situation where um, the inflation uh, rate is in um, a comfortable place uh, and um, we you know, are, are, are back in the happy world we've been in for a while, but we've got kind of both uh, mandates of the FOMC being satisfied uh, simultaneously. Um, before this whole thing started, before the pandemic, um, the preoccupation of the committee was with inflation that was too low, uh, interest rates that were too low, zero bound problem. Do you feel like there has been a some sort of permanent structural uh, change in the economy that uh, will uh, make that not seem like such a salient problem uh, a few years down the line? Or do you think we're going to be back to having those conversations um, once, once inflation is tamed? That's a great question. Uh, there's been a lot of debate lately about will we go back to the sub 2% inflation world we experienced for the last decade? Or are we in now some new regime where we're going to have a hard time getting it down to 2%. Like we couldn't get it up to 2% before. Now we can't get it down to 2%. It's not clear to me what exactly all the structural things are that would cause that to happen. I mean, there's some theories out there about demographics and the China effect and all these kind of things. And we'll, we'll have to wait and see. But, you know, at the end of the day, central banks, we determine the rate of it, there's kind of the trend rate of inflation. Now, whether it's one, 1.75 or two, I don't think we have that precise of control to, to do it. Uh, but we, you know, we should be able to get inflation to be somewhere around 2% or pretty close to it. I don't have any other theory, deep theories of what's gonna cause it not to be that number if we say that's where we want it uh, going forward. So we'll see. Do you think that the, uh... How do you think about the zero bound problem? Um, I mean, now that we've had had some experience with it for for a good part of the last couple couple of decades, um, do you, do you still view it as a real material challenge to monetary policy, or we learn that you know we can kind of manage our way through it with the set of tools that we have on the table now? Yeah, I mean the zero, the zero lower bound problem has gotten worse because our star has fallen so dramatically from like 2%, which we kind of all thought it was in the, in the 90s, to where now, you know, my own personal estimate is somewhere between zero and 25 basis points. So with a 2% inflation target and our star at two, you can run the Fed funds rate at four, no problem. And then you're not really ever gonna hit the zero lower bound problem. You'd have to drop 400 basis points but if our star is at 25 basis points, your steady state interest rate is two and a quarter. Okay, now, now if you had to drop three to four percentage points, you're gonna hit that zero, there's zero lower bound. So I think it's really an R star problem that we got ourselves into. 
I think it's, it's just a feature of the world. I don't think we did anything to cause it to be that. But the fact that our star is really low and doesn't seem to be trending back up, I think the zero lower bound problem is going to be a problem that we face going forward. But I think we have learned with QE and various other policies, we can actually moderate that uh, lower bound uh, and help longer term interest rates with these other policy tools that we've used in the past. Yeah, so there are two issues actually with the lower bound raises. So one of them you just directly responded to, which is, you know, if you have a downturn and you need to uh, engage a stimulative policy, sort of have the tools to do it. Do, does it impart a problematic bias uh, that will keep us short of target? Or do you think that, I mean, I think you've already, I guess you already said that you think that there, there's no reason that we can't kind of maintain um, 2% on average. Uh, yeah, so if, right. So if you look, oh, sorry. No, I just, if you think about the new Keynesian model, the reason the zero lower bound creates a problem in this inflation bias is because when you have these negative shocks, you should be able to cut the interest rate and that'll keep in prices up. They'll keep them from falling as much as they would uh, normally do. So when you can't cut the rates, prices will fall more than they should. And then on average, if you're trying to hit it, prices will be going down much more in downturns than they should be. And so you get this negative bias on the inflation rate. The problem is when you look at like the last recession, there should have been this massive deflation. It didn't happen. It just didn't happen. So this argument from the model doesn't seem to be mapping into reality that we get these big, massive price declines because we can't go below the zero lower bound. It didn't happen in 2009, 10, 11. So I don't think that story matches up with the empirics. I'm sure some, somebody out there will throw some tomatoes at me and say, sure it does. But I don't think that story's held up very well. Uh, and, and then to base a model or a policy framework on that seems a little little dodgy. Uh, got in what I, you know, is a pretty straightforward, uh, if not maybe slightly provocative question, which is, um, do you think that the committee is communicating well? Uh, and are you satisfied with the way the kind of the world is interpreting um, your intentions and your actions? It's a great question. Back in uh, December, January, when we did this kind of abrupt pivot, and then suddenly we were doing a much more aggressive rate hike path, and the market seemed to be absorbing it pretty well. Yeah, they were starting, you know, markets were going down, rates were going up, everything was, but there wasn't the kind of taper tantrum problem we saw in 2013. So when I asked market participants for the last few months, well, starting basically since last December, why hasn't we had a taper tantrum type event yet? Why hasn't that happened? And the answer is always, you guys are communicating very well. You're giving us you know, a lot of road to see what's coming. There's kind of a unified uh, message from all the members of the committee in terms of where the committee's going. And once the markets have that, yeah, they'll get some movements, they'll get some drop in asset prices and whatnot, but it's not, it's not due to real kind of severe volatility where nobody knows what the Fed's going to do. And I think that that's where we've done actually a reasonably good job. 
So let me shift gears a little bit. We got about 10 minutes uh, left and I want to kind of get your thoughts on something you've given a whole bunch of um, um, consideration to, and that is cryptocurrencies um, and uh, that market. And so let me first frame this as a, we, we touched a little bit on financial uh, stability questions, but uh, the um, um, free fall almost uh, and the crypto markets has been eye-opening. Do, does this pose any systemic risk in your mind or, um, or not? I've actually found this last couple of weeks fascinating because you've seen, as you pointed out, kind of a huge loss of value in these things. And there's no impact on the rest of the financial system. So, you know, we're not seeing any banks in trouble. We're not hearing of firms in trouble. There are some hedge funds that maybe got in trouble and went under, but hey, finance is, uh, it's a tough taskmaster. So, I find it kind of fascinating that we've had this big runoff and really nothing's happened in the financial system whatsoever. Now that doesn't mean if it was 10 times bigger, it wouldn't have had an impact. But what I take some comfort is with all the wailing and gnashing of teeth about crypto, we just saw a massive sell-off, bankruptcies, failures, pretty much the financial system's okay. There doesn't seem to be big problems. The other thing I think we found that I personally found fascinating is, yeah, there's a lot of stable coins that went bust, but we had two interesting examples with Tether and US dollar coin. Tether broke their dollar peg for a very short period of time. There were redemptions and they were meeting all their redemptions just like they said they would. And after a while, everybody's like, okay, they're meeting all the redemptions. They're good for the money and it pops back up to a dollar. So there's a case where a bank run on a stable coin, it just ended. There was just no point in continuing the run on the, on the stable coin. The other example is US dollar coin. It actually went above a dollar. It popped up and it was the classic flight to safety for stable coins. The DeFi world needs a stable coin to operate. US dollar coin was much more transparent in what their holdings were. They were appeared to be much safer. So what happened was everybody fled over to US dollar coin and they actually had to start issuing stable coins. So there's a lot of chatter that, ha, this last episode showed us these stable coins are all terrible objects. We need to get rid of them. US dollar coin showed you that wasn't the case and Tether also showed you that wasn't necessarily the case. So that's what I kind of find fascinating about the last, uh, the last couple of weeks with us is it's not an open and shut case that these stable coins are dangerous and we can't have them. Is there something in those business models, uh, Tether and uh, for example, that um, made them more robust than some of the, the ones that went under uh, or is that to be determined? Yeah, I mean, Terra and Luna, these things had no backing whatsoever. They were purely algorithmic. And I, I kind of joked that you cannot program trust. I'm sorry, you just can't. When the, <laughs> when the people lose it, it's gone. You can have all the algorithms you want, but if nobody believes in it, it's gone and its value goes to zero, which is exactly what happened. The uh, Tether and US dollar coin, these are more of what we would think of as a narrow bank kind of model. 
And as long as you got sufficient liquid reserves, you can meet redemptions and honor that promise you made to redeem it at par. Now, Tether was a little more opaque as to what exactly their assets were and where they were. Was it Chinese commercial paper? Was it U.S. government securities? So I think that's where there might have been a little more uh, concern about Tether. But U.S. dollar coin, man, they just sailed right through this thing. They were like, we're we're the U.S. dollar of the crypto world. And it looked exactly like a flight to safety instrument. Um, So now let's think, let me ask you a few questions about uh, central bank uh, digital currencies. Uh, There's obviously been the white paper released earlier this year. And I believe the commentary period is still open. Um, What, how do you think about kind of uh, central bank digital currency? Is there a problem uh, out there or an efficiency to be gained in some material way that you think uh, uh, a central bank digital currency could uh, solve or provide? Yeah, that's the question I posed in a speech I gave last summer, which is what is the major market failure that requires a central bank digital currency as the solution to fix that market failure? I personally haven't been able to identify any. And I haven't yet had anybody convince me of one that needs this. So I kind of always frame it this way. What people, what you have to understand is a central bank digital currency is basically a checking account at the Federal Reserve. For all the technology and bells and whistles and everything they do, it's a checking account at the Fed. Which means if we do this, the Fed is going to take an active role in retail payments for US households and firms. So I have to always ask myself, for the last, Congress gave us the authority and the the job of creating a safe, efficient payment system. The way we've done that for 100 plus years, we let the banks be the front facing entity. We are in the back end, making sure that everything clears and settles properly among the banks. I want to know what's wrong with that framework that we now have to go where the Fed is out front competing directly with banks in the retail payment space. I've had no one give me a seriously good answer for that yet. I'm waiting. Would you have uh, concerns about if if we were to go down that road, would you have concerns about disintermediation or or more susceptibility to runs or, or is that is it simply a matter of costs may not be very big, but it's not clear the benefits are very big either. Yeah. I, so I think the good thing is I, I, I believe I can't say with certainty, but I, I think the the argument that we've kind of put forward is we really think this is a decision for Congress. It shouldn't be up to seven unelected officials to make a decision on this this kind of uh, nature. So if Congress were to say, yes, we want you to do it, I'll do it. That's my job. You tell me to do it. I will do it. No problem. If they say don't do it, I'm not going to do it. So if they were to say to go ahead and do it, and you worry about this disintermediation problem. First of all, just because you offer it doesn't mean anybody wants it. I mean, this is what the Chinese Central People's Bank of China is finding out. They offered their own CBDC. People don't want it necessarily. They're happy with WeChat and Alipay. They don't need a central bank account to make pay their electric bill. So just because we offer it doesn't mean anybody's going to want it. Uh, people always talk about 
you know, there's a lack of financial inclusion because people don't trust banks. Well, if they don't trust banks, they're sure as hell not going to trust the Fed. That's just the nature of, of their distrust. So, you know, it may not even get used or hardly get used. Now, if there was a flow of funds into these accounts, you're just moving reserves from the banks to reserves in these accounts. All we would have to do as a Fed is figure out a way to put those reserves back into the banking system and then it should be okay. So there is, there is potential for disintermediation. We can step in and fix it. But then the question is, why are you causing it in the first place? So um, just very quickly, um, would you feel differently about a, um, a digitized version of the dollar that was, for example, anonymous and circulating like, like, like a physical dollar? Uh, <laughs> I mean, if you want to throw out any money, any anti money laundering and tax evasion concerns, go right ahead. Uh, but I somehow doubt very much Congress is going to say, yeah, go ahead and do that. And by the way, make it as big a denomination as you want. Right, because basically once you go to this world, denominations are basically, you can carry around a trillion dollars of this, no problem. Trillion dollars of $20 bills is a lot of physical space you gotta deal with. All right, so I got a co comment in, uh, we got like one minute left, um, okay. which was Governor Waller, I truly appreciate your honesty, which I know we all do. So now having established the uh, uh, long established reputation for honesty. Give us your best scenario uh, for what everyone should be expecting in the U.S. economy over the next year or so. Yeah, so I think the thing I want to just convey is that the committee is dead set on getting inflation under control. There's one thing the profession and central bankers has learned is you do not want to repeat the 1970s. So we're not going to let that happen. So we're going to get inflation down. That means we're going to be aggressive on rate hikes. And we may have to take the risk of causing some economic damage. But I don't think, given how strong the labor market is right now, that that should be that much. Uh, and even if, if, if we can just slow the growth rate down of the economy down for a few, you know, three quarters, even to a year, that may be sufficient to get inflation back down without causing a real severe recession. Everybody has in mind Volcker crushing the economy to get inflation down. We're not in that world. Uh, inflation had become entrenched. Expectations for inflation was high. Central bank promises, to the Fed promises to bring inflation down were completely non-credible. That's not the world we're living in. So I think we can do this fairly cleanly uh, there always is the upside, you know, downside risk that the economy suffers more than I think it will. But I think we can pull this off as long as everybody understands what we're doing and why. Governor Waller, thanks so much for taking the time with us. Thank you all for joining us.